began last week in talking about marriage in going back to the original pattern that the Lord intended in Genesis. And that's important to do because Jesus did the same thing when in his culture, when many relationships were facing the same dysfunction and brokenness that we see in our culture, people asked him about certain things. Can you do this? Can you do that? Jesus didn't get involved in all the issues and nuances. He just said, let's go back to the beginning to what God intended. And what he's saying by that is that if you go back to what God intends, you'll realize that wherever things might be right now, that God is able to blossom out of that everything He has for you and what He wants for you in your heart, in your relationship. So don't go by the dictates of a culture that is godless, that has lost its way. Don't go by the stats. Don't even go by the things around you. Go back to God and saying, God, what is your plan? What did you intend? And if I walk with you, I can experience in the midst of whatever I might see around me, I can experience everything you intend for me in my relationship. And I can, I can experience that in any area of my life. So going back to Genesis, we read, this is not a review for those who weren't here last week, but I just want to start us off on a little uh, different tangent before I get into the bulk of the teaching. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that when man and woman were first created, something you see very clearly is that God gave them co-dominion. When man and woman were first created, they were co-rulers. We need to understand that. They were equal in every way by way of authority. Uh, we read in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man single in our image after our likeness, and let who? Them have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when God began and He created, He wanted to create beings in His likeness. We see in the Scriptures here, He created humankind. It's important to understand that in the Greek language, the word Adam, Adam, doesn't speak so much to maleness only. It speaks to humanness. That when God created, you might say, and I want to get into depth in this, but when God created the man and the woman, He essentially created a male Adam and a female Adam. He created two beings who together complemented one another perfectly, and in so doing, they also revealed God's character, God's personality. That's why, although God is not a man, He's not flesh, the Bible says that He is spirit, Scripture reveals qualities of God that are in both the male and the female. God created, for example, in the man certain aspects that reflect the maleness of God, you might say, of his personality. That a man is a father, a man is intended to be a provider, a protector. But there are also attributes of God that he placed uniquely in the woman. And there's many of them, but one might be, for example, the, 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 the strength to counsel, that intuitive strength, the, the, the ability to see into things and to give wisdom, that ability to, to nurture in an uncommon way, to care, the real strength that comes from that. And for example, you'll see in, uh, time and again in the Old Testament where God is compared to a, a hen, a mother hen who, who gathers her chicks. And so we see that female, maternal, that, 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 that intuitive sense of, of protect, protecting and nurturing. And so what we see is that in, in the man and the woman, the man Adam, the, the female Adam, what we have is God sharing his attributes. Why? So that when they come together, they beautifully reflect the nature of God. And also when they come together and become one, they receive from each other different attributes that they don't have naturally in and of themselves. Uh, after 31 years of marriage, there are many ways in, in, in which I think like my wife Vanessa. 
I, I, I think like her or I behave like her in certain ways. And there's other ways that I've kind of drawn her out and she is, is more like me in some ways. There, there comes that completeness, that complementing of one another, that companionship, that oneness that the Scripture talks about. And so in our culture, we listen to a culture that, that has lost its way and we take our cues. And as the people of God, friends, we've got to stop doing that. We've got to go back to the Word of God and say, what does God say? I don't care what the trends are. I don't care what the stats are. What does the Word of God say? Because if you've lived long enough, you realize the trends of our culture always change. The dictates of our culture, the convictions of our culture, they always change with the wind, whatever is convenient. Why? Because there's no power, there's no backbone, there's no objective truth to live by. Whereas the child of God, the Lord says, this is my word. There's life in my word. There's freedom in my word. And in the midst of the chaos, if you will go to my word and what I intend for you, that will begin to characterize your life and you will stand out. Because friends, hear me, we live in a world today of people who are broken and dysfunctional and they're looking for somebody for whom life actually works. They're looking for somebody to show them that there is an option, there is a way. And that is part of our witness and we do so with kindness and with, and with humility. And so what we see is that when, when Adam and Eve, Eve were together, and she wasn't even called Eve by them, but when these two beings were together, when they fell, what happened? Together, Sin usurped what God had for them. You see, the issue, I believe, this is my opinion, the issue is not equality. The issue in our culture has never been equality. The issue is unity. That's what God is after. God wasn't worried about equality when he made the man and the woman. He made them equal. They've always been equal. Men have always known that, right? Whether they admitted it or not. They've always known that, and if now she's reminded them, but... We were made husband and wife as co-rulers. But one thing the man and the woman did together, unfortunately, is rather than standing with each other against the enemy, they allowed the enemy to deceive them, and again he usurped their rule, and everything changed. When sin came onto the scene, it introduced resentment, it introduced insecurity, suspicion, struggle, all those things that go along with it. In fact, you'll notice, i got to take this out. Does this gross anybody out? There we go. Couldn't see my notes. When, when, when God first created the woman, notice man's response. He says this, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Does that sound excited? I emphasize those words because... Like he's been waiting a long time. He named all the animals, saw, I don't know how long he was around, but long enough to appreciate he was alone. And God said, it's not good that you're alone. So a woman is created, and he says, at last. Now that's before sin, okay? Notice what happens as soon as sin takes root in his heart. He refers to her as the woman you put here with me. I mean, isn't that a radical change in attitude? When there's no sin, he recognizes how beautiful she was in every way, how she perfectly completed him. But as soon as sin enters the scene, with the brokenness of the human heart, there comes fears. Oh, I'm not going to get enough. I'm not going to have my way. There's insecurities. Oh, I have, to, I have to kind of push myself in order to somehow find significance. There just comes a change in attitude, and he distanced himself. And by the way, my friends, when sin gets a root in your heart, and this is a good way to know that you're not in the right place, 
When sin has its way in your heart in a marriage relationship, you'll soon begin to look at that other person as that man, that woman. You know what I'm saying? Don't say it loud, but you know what I'm saying, right? What happens? Sin, because of what sin does to us and how, the sin, how sin makes us clutch and grab and be self-centered, we look at the other person as an object that's there for me. Rather than reading me there for them or one another there for each other, and there comes that distancing rather than the closeness and companionship. In, in fact, the female Adam was not even named until after the fall. Do you ever notice that? Eve did not get her name until after sin. Before that, there was just them. There was the male Adam, the female Adam, perfectly one, no competition, in love with each other, living in perfect love, recognizing they're different, recognizing their roles are different, being thankful for that, and perfectly complimenting one another as they co-ruled everything God had given to them. But after sin, she has a separate name, and then God says to her in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Eve, your desire will be toward your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, God is not saying, Eve, you're going to think your husband's hot. That's not what he meant by your desire for your husband. What he meant was, and this is further elaborated in the New Testament, God was saying, listen, Eve, you know I made you equal. You both know I made you co-rulers. But because sin has so messed things up, I have to put an order in place. And the reason I have to establish an order of authority is so that you two people who are now broken by sin can actually somehow function as a unit at least in some way that closely resembles what I originally intended for you. So again, they are co-rulers before sin. After sin, God is saying, hey, you can both do the job. But sin has so introduced confusion into your hearts and into your relationship and the sense of competition that basically God has to say, just like you say to two of your own kids who can't get along, listen, if you're not going to figure it out, I'll figure it out for you. If you guys can't figure out how this is going to work, I'm going to tell you, because of the sin in your heart and the selfishness, I'm going to put this order in place, and this is how it is going to be. This is how it is going to work. And there are some wonderful principles that come out of that as well, but it's not for this morning's teaching. I want to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul again refers to um, uh, Genesis when he's, when he's talking about this issue of, of marriage and how God intends it to work. He says in chapter uh, 5 verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Then he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, for a lot of people in our culture today, marriage is a mystery. How to make marriage work, what marriage is supposed to be, it's kind of a mystery. The New Testament word mystery does not mean secretive in the sense that you can't know. God's saying, I've got a secret, I'm not going to tell you. It's not that at all. Mystery means something that was previously unknown, but God has revealed it to us. Why do you buy or read a mystery novel? So that when you get to the last page, there's no answer? Oh, that was interesting. I mean, don't you just love it when you're watching a fascinating program and it, bang, it's in. That's it. Until next season, next year, you know. Netflix or something, you watch you know, some series. Well, that's not what mystery is. Mystery means that what you did not understand before, God is revealing something to you, so now you understand. And of course, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, and he's saying that a man and a woman becoming one in marriage is a reflection 
of Jesus and his church. Now, I know that sometimes our marriages don't reflect the nature of Jesus like they ought to be, but what he's saying is, is if you understand the relationship of Jesus and his church, of how that works, then you will understand the mystery of what a marriage is intended to be, what that relationship is intended to be, how it can actually thrive. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, most of us are familiar with the four kinds of love. We're not going to expand on them this morning. We have agape love, which speaks about that, that unconditional, sacrificial love. There's the filial love, which has, talks about friendship. There's storge love, which relates to uh, protectiveness, provision, and also eros, which deals with the romantic love. And so in those four, you basically have an agape. You have kind of an action love, a love that demonstrates itself. And in eros, of course, you have more of a feeling-based love. But what you'll notice about a marriage relationship in a very unique way, like no other relationship, all four kinds of these loves are present in some way or another at different times. They're all part of a marriage, but it begins with agape love. And again, we won't take time to go into it, but in Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus denied himself. Jesus put aside his own interests. Why? Because he was concerned with our interests. He wanted to take care of our needs, so the Bible says that he gave himself up for us in order to bring us into and experience the circle of his love and to have a loving relationship with him. Uh, Paul says that we're supposed to do the same for the sake of our spouse. And friends, that is where most, if not all, marriages go wrong. That's where we miss it. Most of us got married for what we were going to get. Is that an exaggeration? You can, you can vocalize, because <laughs> we're all the same. Most of us did not get married for what we would give. Most of us did not stand at the altar and say, I can't wait to lay my life down for you and die to every need I have. We didn't do that. She might have been thinking it, but guys, you weren't thinking it. Or vice versa. Okay? We weren't thinking that. That's not how we're wired in our sinful nature. At least it wasn't true for me. I didn't get married to Vanessa to serve her. I got married to Vanessa looking back 31 years ago for what I would receive. And I couldn't wait. We're that way because we have all these lofty ideas of what marriage is supposed to be. And as wonderful as it's supposed to be, it usually kind of centers around what we are going to get out of it. But it took me some time to realize what agape love was in the marriage relationship, and I'm still learning that, but hopefully I've learned a lot more than I still have yet to learn, but I'm still open. I really believe with all my heart that every marriage problem, every violation of the marriage vow goes back to one thing. It goes back to our failure to obey the example that Jesus gave us as to how he loves us and how we are to love one another. Everything is rooted in that. And you might say, Pastor, yeah, but you don't know my spouse. No, I don't. But I doubt there's not times where maybe you don't give Jesus a very good reason to love you or to forgive you or to strive with you, and yet he does. Or maybe you're thinking, I've been loving to my spouse, but it didn't change anything. Hear me, friends, and I say this with graciousness this morning, that may be true, but that's not why you do it. That's not why we do it fundamentally. 
Let me ask you this. Did Jesus die for the world? Did he lay his life down for the world? Did he deny himself and give his life for every single human being that ever lived? Did he? Has every person responded to his love? Has every person appreciated him? Are our churches full of people to capacity in our city today just lining up at the doors wanting to give thanks to Jesus for dying for them? Well, of course, the answer is no. You might be thinking, well, I'm showing love, but it doesn't seem like it's being reciprocated. You need to understand that just because my spouse doesn't respond the way I would like them to respond, it doesn't excuse me from acting any way other than Christ-like. I'm not saying we can't. We can't choose to. Yes, we can choose to, but it's not an excuse. And we may come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm doing this because of that tit-for-tat. And the Lord might say, well, is that an explanation or an excuse? If you're excusing yourself, well, you're going to stay where you are. But if, if you want an explanation of how it can work, then submit to me. And, and again, I re realize I'm painting a bit of a broad, broad brush, brush here this morning. But basically, Jesus said, if you want to walk with me, you must deny yourself. And there's one thing I've found over 31 years, as perfect as my wife is, and any of you who are married know this, there are times when I need to grow, and I might think everything's okay, and I'm the perfect person, everything else, but there's something that has to grow in me. You know what Jesus does? He brings me right back to my marriage, and he says, you die here. He brings me back to some way that I think, something I'm expecting, whatever it may be, somewhere where I need to serve, where I need to become more Christ-like, and he says, okay, right here. It may take a week, it may take months, it may take a year, but that part of you is going to die, and it's only going to die in your marriage relationship. You've got a choice whether or not you want that to happen. We'll expound more on that in just a moment. There's a saying in sports that if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. It's the same in life, friends. Anybody been changed very much by things that don't challenge us, things that don't stretch us? We're quite comfortable to remain where we are. And as two people who are supposed to be one, we are quite comfortable to hold on to everything that we think we deserve and everything that we want. This is my rights. And Jesus says, ah, you can have it. It's up to you. You can die there if you want to what I have for you, or you can die and you can experience what I have for you. And you can experience what I have for your relationship. Now, there's a second part to unlocking this mystery of marriage. And it's very important. And it's understanding that Jesus not only gave us a pattern for us to follow, he also gave us a power to make it happen. Let me say that again. Jesus not only gave us a pattern to follow, as we just mentioned, Jesus laid his life down, but he also gave us a power to make it happen. You might be thinking, well, Pastor, if I give and give and I don't get back, you know, I'm just going to die inside. And that might be true. But keep this in mind. If you're having a struggle in the area of your marriage, for whatever reason, whatever baggage you might have, dysfunction, whoever's fault it may be, whatever the case may be, we're very tempted sometimes to look around at other people, other relationships, and to think they're so lucky. They don't have the struggle I have in my marriage. They have it so easy. Now, you don't know that. You just see people just like they see you. But what you don't know is that very likely in every marriage relationship, whether it's related to their marriage or just something in their own private life, every single one of us have a struggle somewhere. Somewhere. Whatever burden you're bearing, whatever cross you're carrying, every single one of us has struggles. It may not be in your marriage. That may be a healthy thing or something you're content in, not really a big issue for you, but I can guarantee you there's some other place in your life where there needs to be growth 
and there needs to be change. And one of the reasons I believe that Jesus does not take all of our struggles away from us because he knows that if he did, we would never go back to him. I shouldn't say never, but we tend not to. We tend not to rely on him, depend on him, press in to him when everything is going well. And he allows struggles in our lives in different areas because they cause us to grow if we allow them to help us grow. Jesus didn't just give himself up for us. He showed us how to receive the power to do that. And was that an easy thing for him to do? Think about it. Was it an easy thing for Jesus to give himself up for us? It's okay, you can interact. You're all, you know, we had all these cat calls when Tristan's under the piano, now you're all quiet. So, was it easy for Jesus to deny himself? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Consider him, Jesus, who endured, endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let that sink in for a minute. Those are powerful words. Jesus endured intense hatred, hostility. Jesus, who is perfect love, who came to lay his life down, who was a friend of sinners, that same Jesus endured hateful, demonic hostility against him. And yet he endured it. He says, I want you to think about that for a moment. When you look at some of the things that you have to endure, what is the writer of Hebrews saying? I believe what he's saying is that you and I have never faced what Jesus faced. You and I will probably never have to face to the level of intensity of what Jesus faced, but here's the key. Yet, you have the same Holy Spirit in you. You have the same power available to you. Even though whatever you face is far less than what Jesus faced, you have the same power. He didn't dial it down for you because realize you're only going to go through maybe 10% of what he experienced. Oh, you only need 10% Holy Spirit. No, you get it all. You get the same power that Jesus got, the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit at the Jordan River who came down upon him, the same Holy Spirit who drove him into the wilderness for 40 days where he fasted and prayed, where he was tempted of the enemy. Why was he tempted? Because the, the devil was trying to get him off his mission. And what Jesus did during the wilderness time by the power of the Holy Spirit is he died to himself. He denied himself. He denied his life's rights. He denied anything of his flesh that wanted to go any other way than what the Father had for him, the reason why he was here during those 40 days. And the Bible says at the end of it that he left that wilderness experience in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he began his ministry. And he walked in that power of the Holy Spirit Daily relied upon him because Jesus said, whatever you see me do, I want you to understand. I do none of this in my own strength. Not a word I say, not a thing that I do, not a hostility that I resist, not a temptation I resist, not, not a hateful word that comes against me that I return with love and wisdom. All of that is by the power of the Father and by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, as we know from the word, he gave himself up for our sake, once again, dying to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says, struggling with such intensity that blood oozed from his pores. And he won that power by the power of that battle, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus tells you and me this. He says, that's the same power that you have. That's the same power you have for your marriage to work. That's the same power you have 
for your marriage to come alive again, to be resurrected. That's the same power you have for you to come alive and to be a source of love and of light in a place where maybe it's not reciprocated on a natural level, but you have the same power in you. You have the same Holy Spirit in you for your heart to thrive. Now, if you only have a pattern to marriage, you're eventually going to wither and die. If that's all you've got. I can probably go into some of your homes and you've got, you know, 10 different books on marriages. Maybe you've read them, maybe you haven't. I knew a person who wasn't very happy in the relationship and she would buy books about marriage and how to, you know, live in a dysfunctional marriage and all those titles that really sound encouraging and she'd always place it on her coffee table so her husband could see it. Don't you think that helped? He probably used it for, you know, a coffee, for coffee or something. I don't know, but, but if all you have is a pattern... It's not going to be enough. I believe it is humanly impossible for two self-centered human beings to give themselves sacrificially to one another like God intends. And that is why the divorce rate is what it is today in our culture. Why? Because the spirit of our culture does not know how to live and to love this way. Not only does it not know how, as Romans 5, 8 says, it can't. Because even if it has the knowledge, it doesn't have the power to do it. It can have all these lofty ideas. You can have all these great insights in a book. But what happens? The moment that other person in the relationship says something that triggers you, does something you don't like, everything you've read goes down the toilet and the old flesh rears up again. Right? And maybe the book goes into the garbage or you pass it on to somebody else. You can't do it in your own strength. You can only do it by the ability the Holy Spirit gives you and by the ongoing refreshing that He provides in our times of weakness and our times of weariness and our times of dryness. You might be wondering, what is it about the fullness of the Holy Spirit that allows a husband and a wife to give up themselves for one another? Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and 8, say it with me, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit, power means ability, the can do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what? You will be my witnesses. You will be like me wherever you go, Jesus is saying. You will be like me in the marketplace. And you know what? A lot of times it can be a challenge, but it's not that bad so far in our culture. You know where it's really hard? It's not the marketplace. It's in the marriage. It's in that place where you know a person really well, and they know you really well. It's in that place where even if you're trying to change, you have a history together. You know areas where you've messed up. You know this person knows you like nobody else, and so it's really hard sometimes to believe that you can actually change. It's hard to believe that they believe that you can actually change and vice versa. In the marketplace and in the marriage, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. You will be, you will act like me in every situation. Because somebody understand that sometimes you need divine strength to give yourself up for your spouse. Come on now. Don't leave me hanging. You say, no, Pastor, you're doing great. I love the confession. It's good for the... I'm not here to make you feel good. Okay? I'm here to tell you, we're in the same battle. We're living the same life. We put our pants on the same way. We do. We really do. We're in this together, folks. None of us have it easy. None of us have a corner on anything. You know what we have? We have truth. We have the truth of God's Word. We have a roadmap. We have a pattern that Jesus has given us, and we also have a power 
that is able to overcome the world, the flesh, the devil. We have divine strength that the Lord offers to us. Well, how does the Holy Spirit actually give divine strength? This is so important. Number one, through God's experiential love. John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is an amazing thing. Jesus actually invites you and me into his inner circle of love. Just think about this for a moment. The same love that is in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all that that is, Jesus says, come on in. This is for you. I want you to know this. I want you to know it in your relationship with me. I want you to know it in your relationship with people. I want you to be intoxicated with a supernatural love. You see, friends, we've got to understand that following Jesus Christ, it is not about a religious lifestyle. It's about a radical love. It's a radical love that you experience that shatters fears, that shatters insecurity, that cleanses you, that affirms you, that lifts you up, that gives you a sense of purpose and identity, that helps you to understand who you are in Christ, that helps you to understand it is true. You can count on it. Greater is he that is in you than he that comes against you. That he is your refuge. He is your strong tower. He is your shelter. He is your rock. He is everything you need when you have nothing else. He will never leave you. He does not abandon you. He is there for you. You can know him in the secret of his presence. You can be sustained in his presence. You can do things by the power of God that you could never do and that nobody else around you can do. And everybody around you, like the devil said to Jesus, says, go a different way. Save your life. Do your thing. And you follow him and you will die. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he is dead, though everything around him seems to be dead, he will live. He will live. That's who our God is. He doesn't just give you a pattern and say, live up to this. He says, I'm telling you right now, you can't. But I'm going to give you a power that you don't just be frustrated. You can actually experience. And friends, it doesn't mean that the other person is going to change. They may not, but you can be a different person. You can be a different person. This just comes to mind. Maybe this is for somebody. I remember a dear lady when I lived in Oregon a number of years ago as a teenager. She, she, I marveled at her faith. She was a woman who just, just glowed with the presence of the Lord. And she lived in hell at home. She lived with a husband who had no time for Christ. She lived with a man who was always drunk. A man who even brought other women home. Everybody said, leave him. What are you doing? Why are you staying? And I'm not saying this is for everybody, but she was so dependent on Jesus. She was so full of Jesus that she loved him and loved him and loved him. I don't think he ever gave his heart to the Lord. But he died, and I remember a few years later when I came home from college, he had died, and she was remarried to the most godly man <laughs> in that church who was a widow. And God gave them about 25 years together traveling the world as a man and a woman who loved God. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody, and I'm not saying this to condemn anybody who's in a difficult situation. I'm just telling you, as a young man, she made an impression on me as a woman who knew her God. 
and was able to endure what I thought would be absolutely impossible because she clung to Jesus and she just decided, I'm going to live like Jesus. In the midst of what, and don't think there wasn't tears. Don't think there wasn't heartache. Don't think there weren't struggles and times I'm sure she wanted to walk out. But in that given situation in her life, between her and God, that's what she did. And I remember just seeing her after when she was remarried, thinking, Lord, you're so faithful. You're so faithful to reward us when we just do what you're asking us to do. And I'm not saying this for everybody. Please understand me. Three times Jesus says in his prayer, Father, I want those who follow me to experience the same love with which you and I have always loved each other. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be what? Strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. Where? In your inner being. Do you need strength in your inner being this morning? Do you need power in your inner being? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel stuck in a bad marriage? Do you feel stuck at some place maybe in your marriage? Paul says God has something for you that goes right to the heart of what you're feeling. What did Paul say? That you being rooted and grounded in love. Now hear me, friends. This is the important thing. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul is talking about experiential love. He's not talking about theoretical love. You don't need me to stand here this morning and talk to you about love. You don't need to hear just more insights on love. You know what you need? You need an encounter with love. You need an encounter with supernatural love that is so undeniably real that it fills your heart with hope. And it fills your heart with strength and with faith. Romans 5, 5, this hope, Paul says, will what? Not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us. Because He has given us the Holy Spirit to what? Fill our hearts with His love. Do you hear me this morning? Do you hear me? This is so important. Please don't sit there in your spirit, just kind of yawn and get through the message. Friend, this will change your life. He has a love that he wants you to experience. Not just know about it. Not just come on Sunday and sing about it. Not just feel good. He wants you to experience something he has for you. That becomes a strength for you. He goes on to say in Ephesians 3.18, that having been rooted in this love, that you may have what? Strength, not goosebumps. No, no, no. Strength. It's tangible. I want you to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, because all the saints need this, and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That doesn't make sense. How in the world can I know something that surpasses knowledge? Can I? How do I know something if he says it surpasses knowledge? But he wants you to know it. What are you doing? You're messing with my head. No, you've got to understand. It surpasses knowledge because it's experiential. You ask me why I love Vanessa. I can list a dozen reasons. But why would I lay my life down with her, for her? Because I love her. 
I've experienced a love for her. I have this love that I can't put into words. I can describe certain things, but at the end of the day when I have to deny myself, even if I'm right, I lay it down because I have this experiential love. We connect. We're intimate. We are one. We know each other. We are part of each other as God intends. It's an experiential thing. And Paul is praying for the Christians in Ephesus to experience that. Because he says that is what is going to strengthen you in every area of your life. And he goes on to talk about marriages so the two are connected. He says, listen, that's what's going to strengthen you in your marriage. You've got to experience God. You've got to experience his love. If you're going to love and be one as he has intended. To get what Jesus got, and he got a perfect bride without spot or wrinkle, then you need to love like Jesus loved. And to love like Jesus loved, you've got to experience what Jesus experienced. It's that simple. And that's why God has not called us to a form of godliness. He has called us to righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's called us to experience Him. Because we need to know He's real. We need to have a power and ability available to us in the times where just the mental doesn't work enough. Because you see, if it's just what I know, if it's just what I read, how many understand, I can justify my actions real easy. But it's really hard to do that when there's a fullness of the Holy Spirit in me. When the love of the Holy Spirit is washing over me. That is the purpose of the baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to everyone who believes in Him for salvation. It is Jesus' experiential love that gives us strength to keep on going. Paul says, strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. You know, I hear Christians all the time, and I, I, I say these words to the Lord myself sometimes, not just for marriage, but in any area of life. I hear people say all the time, Pastor, I, I just I can't go on. And you know what? You're right, you can't. It's too hard. It's too hard. But with God's love that surpasses all knowledge, you can go on. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I can look over this audience right now and easily in 10 seconds I can pick out seven people just to start and have them come up here and they can say to you what the pastor is saying is true because I've proved it. I've proved it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't even want to do it. But I turned to Jesus. I pressed into Jesus. Jesus is more than a belief system. He's a person. He's the living God. He's the one we sang to this morning. He's the one we sang about this morning. And friends, I say this with all kindness. In any area of our life, not just marriages, any area of our life, that worship is not just standing here with our hands raised, feeling good, and singing with our voices. True worship is lining up with the Word of God. True worship is in hell and high water, turning to Jesus and saying, Lord, I know what I feel. I know what I see. I know what everybody else around me is doing. But Lord, what do you say? What does your word say? What is your intention? How was it in the beginning? What do you see and what do you have for me? Lord, I line up to you. I surrender to you. And you know what? God looks at that heart and says, they're worshiping me. That is worship. That is worship. And then out of those experiences, we have true worship that flows from our heart when we come into the presence of the Lord. I say, well, Pastor, I don't have the love of my spouse. Friends, I say this with all kindness. That's not what you need most. We need it, but it's not what we need most. What we need most is for the Holy Spirit to fill our heart with God's love. When you experience His love for you, 
then you will have the ability to do what he is he's asking you to do. And you'll do it out of your love for him. I know this is radical. It's not. It's just biblical. But I know it's radical. Because you won't hear this at the water cooler. You ever stand around the water cooler talking to somebody with a bad marriage? And some pagan strolls up and says, hey, man, you just got to die to yourself. That's all you got to do, man. You just got to love your wife. Just love your husband in a radical way. That will save your marriage. You don't hear that. What do you hear? Leave the bum. Oh, you got kids? I don't care. Leave the bum. You're not happy? I don't care. Why? Because the devil comes to rob and steal and kill and destroy, and he works in the pain, and he works in the confusion, and he works in, the, in, in what hell is doing there. Jesus said, I've come to give you life. I've come to give you life, not just a pattern. I've come to give you power. I've invited you into my love. I invite you to know me, to really know me. I invite you to, to break in. I invite you to fast and pray. There is something we don't hear about a whole lot today. I invite you to press in and experience God's love for the love of God to be shed abroad in your heart. How are we doing for time? I've got to wrap up real quick. Number two, not only God's experiential love, but God's experiential joy. Jesus prayed in John 17 that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. He wants us to experience God's love and joy. One thing that stood out to Luke about Jesus that he wrote about, he said that Jesus was full of joy. How? Because he was popular, everybody loved him? And he was going easy? Through the Holy Spirit. There was a joy that Jesus found in the presence of God. Jesus modeled Nehemiah 8 that says the joy of the Lord is not just an emotion. It will be strength to you. Do you realize that Jesus never shrank back from a challenge? You ever think about that? Not only did he not sin, he was never defeated. He was never overcome by the enemy. He was never overcome by the, the wickedness and the pain and the brokenness around him. Even in the face of withering opposition, Jesus had the strength to keep on going. And he got it, the Bible says, through the Holy Spirit. And that's why he wants you and me to have the Holy Spirit without measure, just like he did. Because isn't it true that when your heart is full of love and joy, you can go through almost anything? Isn't that true? That's what the Lord is saying. I've not left you. You're not alone. Anyone wants you to think that you're alone all by yourself. Look around. Everybody's got it all together. You don't. No, no. Don't buy into that lie. You're not alone. I'm with you. I just want you to turn to me. Don't turn to the enemy. Don't turn to your flesh. Don't do what naturally comes to mind. Come. I invite you into this circle of love. I will pour my spirit into your heart and give you a strength and a joy to sustain you for what I want to walk with you through. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And as they do, you know, this morning we began about how God had originally made man and woman to be co-rulers over everything that he made for them. And friends, that's what he wants to restore to every marriage here this morning. But it requires a radical change of heart. In that same chapter in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Submit to one another because of your reverence for Christ. Will you read that with me? Submit to one another because of your reverence for Christ. Because you have a surrendered heart to Christ. Submit to one another. Then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And all the men said. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Do it for the Lord if you can't do it for yourself. Do it for the Lord, not just to make him happy. Do it for the Lord, recognizing that he tells the truth, and if he says it works, it works. 
And husbands, this is a good chance to read men, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, people, it's not about equality. It's about unity. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's unity. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, fear is driven out. Insecurities are driven out. All the things that clutch and grab, they are driven out where the love of God reigns. And he says, if you will open your heart to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, husbands, number one, I will give you the capacity to love your wife like Jesus loves. What happens when you love your wife? When you truly love your wife, what do you do? You put her needs before your own. Is that not right? She comes first. And in so doing, with that kind of love, what are you doing? You are submitting to your wife. I, don't, I could be wrong. Come see me after if I am. I do not know a woman on the earth I can think of who would not submit, trust that kind of love. Does that make sense? Jesus says, I understand you're made different. Paul says, God made you different, different needs, different ways of response, different buttons. Okay. So husband, if you will love your wife in a way that puts her first, you are submitting to her. Wife, in your submission, in trusting the Lord and going into his order of things, by your submission, what are you doing? You are showing love to your husband. So what do you have? When two people are full of the Holy Spirit, they have different roles, different strengths, different weaknesses. They are loving each other and submitting to each other. And you know what has happened? The original pattern for what God had in the garden of co-rulers, not competing, not striving, but walking in unity first to the Lord, their hearts full anytime they feel to get into a place, go back to the Lord. Lord, fill me up again. I'm getting selfish. Lord, fill me up again. I'm getting irritated. Lord, fill me up again. There's something broken in her or him that's rubbed me the wrong way, and I need your grace right now because they need love. They don't need impatience from me. They don't need judgments from me. They don't need criticism from me. They need love. Lord, help me to love them right now back into wholeness. Let me come back into wholeness. That's what he means. Submit yourselves first to the Lord. Go to him in all things. Lord, I want to walk in your fullness so that together, together, we can be one. We can be complete. We can, again, have co-dominion over everything you've intended for me. And in that, the mystery of marriage is solved.